Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Well, welcome to another Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And Barry, today we're visiting with David Cordua, culinary trained chef, very experienced in multiple units, catering events. And what's very interesting in his life right now, besides the fact that he's developed his own concept, and he's opening up a restaurant for the very first time, is he's also becoming a father for the very first time. So David, you've got a few things on your calendar. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. A couple of babies at the same time, which <laughs> I think it's kind of the way life works and tends to be better because you can always juggle another ball when you're already juggling several. Well, welcome to Corner Booth. Perhaps you could just kind of get us started by giving the listeners a little background, how you first became interested in hospitality, what drew you to this business? Well, thank you, Chris Barry, for having me. So hospitality was something that I was born into. My parents opened the first Churrasco's here in Houston when I was six years old. And it was actually modeled after a restaurant that my dad's family had in Nicaragua. And when they came in the late 70s, it was always something that he wanted to recreate and got to practice with his friends and family before launching it in 1988. So it was something that I grew up into. So I knew the good, the bad, and the ugly of the restaurant business and came into it with eyes wide open, but had to come to it on my own terms. And it wasn't until I was about 18 years old after working in the family business that I got started working in hotels where I really got the hospitality bug. I applied for culinary school after getting my undergraduate degree in finance and went to the Cordon Bleu in Paris, where I lived and worked for two years. Went back to California for another two, three years before coming back to Houston, sort of in my mid-20s, where I joined the family business and opened five locations with the family. And this is my first restaurant on my own, which is exciting and terrifying, like all good things tend to be. Well, David, we are very interested in independent operators, those in the startup phase, and we've been talking to them for a long time. You're starting a new restaurant at a very interesting time in the economy and what's going on with a lot of things, labor, supply chain, but you know what you're doing, obviously. What are some of the things that you're dealing with right now as a brand new operator that are really tied to just what's going on in general with the industry and with the challenges that we're facing. Yeah. So being approached by a landlord to open up a concept in the middle of the pandemic, at first I was hesitant to it, but at the same time, my catering business had all but gone away. And I thought what a blessing in disguise also that I have time to incubate, really flush out the concept, really flush out the business plan really go back to school, which Chris was so instrumental in that entire process for me. The pandemic really allowed me to kind of go back to school and start from square one. The surprises in kind of this post-pandemic world, material costs, engineering costs, even design costs are up about 30, sometimes 40%. So that's been a challenge and something that we weren't expecting. I mean, when all this started, we were all concerned with lumber. 
right? Mm-hmm. Remember those days when like lumber was the biggest problem? It's been so many things now since then. And the market is hungry for new restaurants to open and the industry is delivering. So on the one side, there is this shortage of material, of labor. But on the other hand, you have this like audience that's been dying to get out of their houses and so ready to try new places. So we're going to deliver one way or another. So tell us about your concept, the food, the ambience, the style of service. Give us the picture here. The name of the restaurant is The Limbar, and it's located in the original Sears building, which is kind of an iconic building in Midtown Houston. And with that sense of history, we wanted to draw on our family's history. So Limbar Drive was the name of the street. My grandparents immigrated from Nicaragua to Houston, too. And it's also the street where I was born and raised, where the Churrascos and America's concepts were developed. So it was really paying a tribute to our roots in the city. And with the ION wanting us to be sort of the hotel lobby bar, the reception for the entire ION district, we are putting a bar emphasis on the concept with barrel-aged spirits like aged rum, which Nicaragua is very well known for, as well as bourbon. And then we're taking all the flavors from our previous concepts and doing them in a more compact, small plate format so that the experience is a lot more dynamic. Instead of committing to a $50 entree that is 30 bites, you can pack a lot more flavor and a lot more impact into things that are in the $15 range and, and share six plates between you know, two couples uh, for a kind of more dynamic experience. It's something I call you know, food, food ADD, uh, where I, I think there's almost a premium for smaller portions so that you can have that dynamic experience and try a lot of different things. Um, so that's the experience uh, at, at the Limbar. Um, it's, it's our Latin hospitality re- repackaged in um, that sort of condensed and intense format. Food ADD. <laughs> you can relate I like that right? term. Um, <laughs> I think I... I've probably suffered from that uh, for years. I just didn't know we had, I don't know, a classification to call it. (laughs) You mentioned the ION. So talk a little bit about that. You're part of a bigger complex. Is this complex hospitality? Retail, what is it? Rice University uh, developed this really ambitious project here in Midtown. uh, that's going to be about six square blocks uh, in the city with uh, Microsoft as the sort of flagship tenant in, in the ION building. Um, it's also going to have Chevron Tech, which is sort of the green arm of, of Chevron. It's an incubator as well. So a lot of technology startups are gonna be in the building. Um, the main floor has an amphitheater that is just begging for TED Talks to be had. So it's really cool and really exciting to be part of this really forward thinking incubator. Uh, where a lot of cool new ideas are, are going to come out of America's energy city. Um, but they've also, you know, put together a really cool group of diverse tenants that reflect the city's diversity. So besides uh, us, there's uh, Chris Williams and Don Burrell from Lucille's are doing a restaurant called Late August. She was just a finalist on Top Chef. Um, there's a stuffed wings concept that was uh, a food truck 
uh, in the Fifth Ward that's getting their first brick and mortar uh, at the ship, the Shipley's location across the street from the building. Um, and Second Draft which is a, a family-owned uh, craft brewery of some Rice graduates as well. So we're, we're all kind of, you know, startups in, in and of ourselves, um, but I think really reflective of the city of Houston also. It seems like you're getting a lot of energy from being in the associate, being in association with these other startups. It, uh, it seems to be kind of an important part of the whole vibe I'm hearing here. Definitely. And I think, I think that's why they picked um, the food and beverage operators that they did because they wanted them to also, you know, startups, new, uh, new takes on some, on, on classics that you might know. So, I mean, people know Churrasco's in America's, but this is my own restaurant on, on my own. People know Chris Williams and Lucille's, but it's Don Burrell's, uh, first on her own. So it's, it's definitely in that, in that startup mentality. I think that they've assembled this team. And for those people who might be listening and uh, were outside of your market area, not that familiar with Churrasco's, Americas, Artista, or the events, maybe you could explain a little bit about the family roots, the style of South American taste and flavors that those concepts did. Yeah, so in the, in the mid-80s, there was um, a, a few chefs around the country doing uh, a cuisine, which was what was called Nuevo Latino at the time, which was essentially taking um, the, the Nouvelle French cuisine of the late 70s and 80s and uh, using Latin American and Caribbean ingredients with that Nouvelle cuisine technique and those plate presentations. But my father was a, a pioneer um, along with you know, Van Aken, Douglas Patria, uh, both, both of those guys were in, in Florida. Um, but, but in Houston, I would say, Robert Del Grande and Michael Cordua were sort of pioneers in this nouvelle cuisine with, with Latin American influence. That, that, that was the roots of, of our cuisine was, it really is French food. And it happens to be my, my training and background as well. And it's not that you just throw pineapple and mango on things. It's, 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 it's nuanced and more thought out. There is a lot of authenticity in it, but you might see some butter sauces. I think Nobu did the same thing with with Japanese and, and Peruvian cuisine, kind of kind of around the same time. And I think there's a, a, a generation that that is unfamiliar with with that. I hate to use the word fusion, but with with how forward thinking that that type of global cuisine was at the time. Um, and so I think it's time for a new generation to be introduced to it. And packaging it in a bar format with small plates, uh, it's, it's a kind of easy way to dip your toe in. Chris, how often are we seeing the spirit of adventure among young operators now? It really hits me. Um, it seems like we're headed into a whole different era of, um, of taste and willingness to try new things. Am I getting it? Oh, I think you are. Yeah, I think you are. I think... What David and his team are doing, I think, is right on target for where people are going. Um, as, as the community, the dining community learns a little bit more of food, you know, people are more food knowledgeable now than before. 
Um, I don't really know if that's if we can thank the Food Network for that or what, but but people are just aware now that 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 uh, food is a combination of styles, uh, mixes of different techniques, uh, and so I think that creates a drive, you know. Uh, and then you get young, talented people in the industry that want to take authenticity to answer what's next. Let, let's take it to the next step. And you're right, you're seeing it in Asian food and European nuances. And, and so everyone is just trying to stretch it and become more creative. It's a really exciting time, I think, for uh, culinarians. David, as you know, um, uh, a lot of operators, even fine dining operators, um, have had to try to adapt to some form of takeout and delivery um, uh, your restaurant, uh, from how you describe it, is is very uh, sit down, experiential. Um, uh, but is that type of service something that you're uh, contemplating, or you feel that you are going to integrate into your business model? Yeah, more more than contemplating, we're leaning into it completely. I mean, the capabilities that we have with some of the more mobile POS systems, like toasts and and apps that the ion is developing itself we're going to be able to take orders directly from someone's cubicle in their office mm-hmm. and deliver it to the specific location that they're sitting in um it's incredible the technology available and how much it's it's developed since the pandemic um to to, to do takeout um, so that 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 is a is going to be a large component of of our business model, being in an office building, obviously, but also in in the midtown area. The concept also is going is is going to lend itself to, you know, the small plates are, are also kind of, I hate to use the word bento box, but mm-hmm. we can. The idea is that for lunch, we're going to be able to create boxes of these small plates that you can personalize and customize. Uh, for for a lunch experience, part of the reason why we're doing Latin with a little bit of Mediterranean influence is because that it, it, it adds that element of of health um, and freshness that, that lends itself to lunch as well as as to late night. But to answer your question, we're leaning into takeout big time. So the items will travel okay. Then you're saying, yeah, we're, no. The the idea is to have uh, a box that. You know, you'll be able to have a, a rice dish, a salad, uh, vegetable, your your protein, and multiple sauces in in a single box. Sounds a lot more fun than a, a McFish sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, fits right in with what people are looking for too, um, where presentation is important, uniqueness of branding is important. With the amount of curbside pickup, third party delivery. Um, you know, and take out um, to differentiate yourself with packaging uh, is important. You know, we're long past the regular hinge top three compartment. So I think what David's suggesting fits right in with presenting the food properly for your concept. And, and take, I would say the, the area in which takeout has failed is, is in too much packaging, clump, clumsy, bulky bulky packaging mm-hmm. uh, that requires that requires you to open up you know 15 different things to have you know the normal experience you would in the restaurant so we're trying to condense that into something that's like a box you would get from in and out 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, or, or, or like a, a poke bowl that contains everything that you're looking for in that, in that one container, um, you know, not to get all environmental, but also, you know, we want, we're going to be able to reduce the amount of, of, of packaging. Packaging costs is, is up about 150% as well. That's yeah, there's a cost, but I, I think a lot of your, your guests, a lot of your customers um, appreciate uh, having their food sent to them with that, a lot of waste uh, left behind. I think you're right, Mary. I, agree. I do. I think packaging today is being looked at that way, uh, where operators are concerned because the cost is going up, but also the user is concerned because there's a lot more care now for managing waste and care for the planet than before. So I, I think this, this kind of presentation, David, is very important for you to do. With your forward thinking, David, um, I have a feeling you're going to provide some education for us on how you are um, promoting and marketing this. If, if, if the time is right for you to really get out there and let the world know about it, um, can you tell us about your thoughts on promotion, marketing, engagement, um, uh, using all this technology and, um, of course, social media and all the other uh, ways that we're interconnected now? In, ter- in terms of marketing, we're living in a, in a very visual world right now. E- everything that we're taking in is, is through, through our phones uh, or, or online. Um, and some of the best operators are really moving away from heavy copy to a lot more of a, of a visual uh, selling point. Um, you know, we, we've, we've, got, we've been using QR code menus uh, since the pandemic, and there's, there's an opportunity there for people to really see uh, the food that they're about to order, to really see um, what's, what's going to be delivered to their front door. Um, so I see that as a huge opportunity, the use, the use of, of, of mobile. I, I still personally love holding a menu and I love the romance of flipping through a book and, and, and the pages, but there's, there's a lot to learn from the pandemic in terms of how people really make their food choices. Uh, and a lot of it is visual. Mm-hmm. So what else can you tell us through the development of this menu uh, that you could share? The, the small plates, I think, sound exciting. The idea of making the, you know, the combinations to handle the groups and making it very easy for it to be packaged for pickup to go works well. Uh, but in addition to that, what other excitement do you have? Is there a, a brunch component? Is there a, um, a maybe a private party component also that you're planning for Limbar? No, I mean, the, I think we have to, you know, show, show uh, the market something new and, and where our brand has evolved uh, since Churrasco's in America's. But I'm also very aware that we have to uh, keep doing what al- has already worked for us. Uh, and we were, we were known for being uh, large, large party friendly, um, you know, having items that were very, very shareable. Um, so really it's, 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 it's one foot forward and, and, and what one foot grounded in, in, in the past. So I still think, you know, we, we need to keep doing what, what brought us to the table in the first place, but in, in, a, in slightly new packaging. Excellent. So do you work with your menu development on a seasonal basis? Um, uh, being that this is a brand new concept, does that mean you're open to 
new items? Are you hunting for uh, smaller purveyors that are close using more local or what? Absolutely. Part of the story of the Limbar, uh, which is great, is there was, besides our family uh, and the Druby family that had uh, a group of, of Mediterranean uh, delis and bakeries, there's, there was a family that now has an urban farm that we're going to be using called uh, Finca Tres Robles. Um, so that's, what, that's one side that I'm really excited about, is, is being able to use small purveyors that I, I had in, in the past. Uh, and seasonality is a big component of, uh, you know, the vegetable menu that we have, which is about a good quarter of the menu is, is not, I don't want to say vegetarian, but vegetable forward. So local sourcing, um, do you see that as a way to get around some of the hurdles other operators are facing in terms of supply chain? That, that would seem to be one of, me one of the advantages other than the great narrative that you can talk about too. Yeah, so so it it is. It's also for me. It's just more of an opportunity to to use these local beef suppliers. We're using CR Ranch, which is just outside of Houston, doing this incredible Texas Wagyu. Uh, besides Finca Tres Robles, so I don't see it as a solution to the supply chain. I see it as a uh, an opportunity for for using these smaller suppliers. Good. I'm sure they really enjoy the opportunity, you know, to work with you and, uh, and, you know, and, and help you on this concept. It's good for them too. Kind of giving us a good overview of the concept. We've talked a lot about the menu. Maybe you could walk the listeners through how you're doing this. Um, I mean, times are tough. Um, even though it's an excellent location. And as you mentioned, the landlords came to you. Okay. So we understand how you found the location. But how did the process start with defining the idea and the business plan? And then, you know, if you could tell us how long the process has taken and where you are in the process, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah. So the first step is to get really hungry. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm not kidding. I mean, my, my, my creative process when it comes to developing menus and dishes is really think, think like the consumer first not what's available in the market, not, it's what, what, what am I into? What am I craving? Uh, what, what new associations can I, can I bring to the table? Um, and it, and it really like lyrics to a song, it starts with, with words on, on paper. Um, and it starts for me, it starts with the menu um, because this is, uh, this is the product, the packaging, guests are going to hold in their hands this is what's going to ultimately drive them to to visit you is these words they're really words on paper they're words that um have to seduce um have to have an element of mystery um have to have an element of familiarity right because if it's all mysterious um and i have no idea what you are i'm not interested in visiting so the menu, the menu to me it always always comes first. Fol- following that, it's it's the story of the experience uh, of what it is walking through the door, um, what the sensory experience is, the decor, the, the music, um, and that kind of creates the setting, sets the stage, if you will, to tell people in a business plan 
this is what we're planning to offer. This is the revenue we think we can generate. Um, and this is the impact I think we're going to have for the community, for our employers, and to our investors. Um, so it's really, it's really a, a narrative that starts with, to me, the menu, then setting a stage, a, a setting around yourself, uh, and then filling in the blanks with, with concrete empirical data, uh, comps, what, what people around you are doing, you know, what, what successful businesses in your direct market are doing, um, and doing that concisely, succinctly, uh, and in a sellable way. That was step one. The following step was, was assembling, assembling the team, assembling the team of uh, des designers, architects, engineers, um, that, that become part of, of that narrative, um, that fill, that fill in the, the blanks. And it's been frankly, one of, the, one of the most rewarding experiences of my life seeing, seeing that, that come together from, you know, a space, a thought, a concept into something, into something physical. Um, and I imagine it's even going to be even greater when we break ground. Uh, and I can't wait to celebrate that day. Are there, plans at this point to expand that concept uh, to further units are you are you looking down the road in that manner um not to get too far ahead of what you're already trying to accomplish but you sound like you really have planned this pretty carefully and it's something that might be replicated we're, we're talking to a group um in in austin that is interested um in in the concept um, in a boutique hotel currently, um, but that's that's a, a bit of a ways down. But you know, with with this model um, and the the footprint that it has, I think it definitely has some some scalability. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's it has a lot to do also with the uh, mix of of beverage to to food sales when you can get closer to that 40% of liquor, beer, and wine sales, uh, you can do a lot more with a, with a smaller uh, footprint of a space. Um, and, and I think that's a model that's replicable. Mm -hmm. So what is the size? What's the seating capacity? Um, and uh, when do you expect to break ground? So the space is uh, 3,100 square feet with uh, 80 seats, uh, including bar seats and seats around the open kitchen with an additional uh, 30 outside. So we're right under, you know, 120 uh, seats, but we're, we're hoping that, you know, on, on certain nights that we're, we're at standing capacity and that, Good. that people are, people are coming to use our space, you know, before dinner, after dinner, and, uh, you know, don't mind rubbing shoulders, literally. <laughs> How many, how many day parts, David? Uh, I, is there a lunch day part as well? Yeah. So we're, we're open seven, seven days a week, um, 11 to 11, um, mon Monday through Thursday. Um, we're open till midnight, Friday, Saturday, uh, and Sunday we're primarily focusing on, on the brunch operation from 10 to three. Mm-hmm. 
Sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. You made a comment earlier about how it was exciting building the team, finding the right design team, construction, engineering, and getting that going. People that obviously understood your uh, concept and wanted to help you make it a, a, a reality. Um, walk us through how you develop your operations team. Um, you know, how you develop the key people that are going to help you manage, uh, hire, train, run the kitchen. You know, do you have a, a team in place or do you have people in mind? How, is it is it harder to find those kinds of people today? Yeah, so so we're just we're just starting that process. So to be honest with you, I don't I don't know how hard it is going to be yet. I know that I've been I've been running with a very skeleton crew uh, in in catering. My philosophy is, uh, you know, having having fewer people that uh, can do multiple jobs and and have and maximize their hours, uh, their salaries, and and their benefits. Um, in going into this process, that's that's what I'm, I'm focusing on is being able to give people, you know, a living a living wage in these times um, with as much benefits as we can possibly offer. Um, and, 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 and I think it, it, you do have to allow people to serve multiple roles in, in, in doing that. So people might not just be a bartender, but they might go you know, into the floor as well. People in the kitchen might be allowed to serve. So that, that's sort of one of the concepts that we're playing with is giving people the flexibility of having multiple roles so that, so that they can maximize their hours, maximize their income, and you know, pay, pay them as much as we can in this highly competitive environment. That sounds very good. It sounds like you've got an, uh, an idea of how to develop a proper culture for success uh, working with you know, today's restaurant model. We hear, we hear a lot about how staff seem to uh, want to find places to work where they belong, uh, not just where they can earn money. Uh, we hear other successful operators talking about engaging their staff uh, in decision making and um, empowering them uh, and uh, and in order to um, raise the level of retention because it seems like if somebody's able to do more, they feel better, they're more valuable to you and they stay longer. Um, is that your your thinking uh, with this cross training approach to your staff? Yeah, I think I think you nailed it on the head. It's it's about you know having 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 multiple I don't want to say mini managers, but empowering everyone to have you know the capability to make managerial decisions uh, and and serve multiple roles. I I love the Houston's model um, where the general manager uh, is is essentially a kitchen manager and can fill that role, but can also you know do every role in the front of the house as well. Um, so it's, it's about empowering people, uh, training people, and I, I think creating a, a culture where everyone is a person of substance um, and, and no one is, uh, is just easily replaceable or indispensable. Every, everyone serves a, a vital role uh, in, in the unit. Um, and that sounds, you know, that's, that sounds nice, but actually making that, that happen um, it, it's, it's a stretch that, that needs to happen in our, in our industry. Um, people, people just living off of tips. Uh, the, the industry has told us we're not okay with this. 
there, there needs to be a fundamental paradigm shift um, with, within the industry that frankly, we haven't figured out yet. Um, but but every, every day we're going to make decisions to help us get closer to something that that works for our first customer, which is the employee. Our first customer is our staff. Uh, and, and if if we figure that out, we've we've done something uh, we've done something right already. That uh, people first approach incorporated into the mission is really something great to hear. I mean, you say, well, it sounds nice, but the way you express it, that seems to be something more like a mission statement or a value statement, not easily achieved, but certainly a guiding principle. It is. It's, it's something that, yeah, it's like perfection. You're never going to achieve it. It's about like stri striving for it every day. You're on the right track, though, because, uh, uh, again, the, if the staff are comfortable in their knowledge, if they're confident in their ability, they do a better job. Everyone wins. They do a better job and they're more cross-trained. Uh, they feel more valuable. They stay longer. So you're right. You need a happy, productive environment for the staff. Uh, and sounds like you're placing that first. So uh, I think I think you have uh, I think you have the right direction for building the ops team. Yeah, it's a, it's the Danny Myers model, right? It's you know in, in the order of priority, it's the sta staff first, then the customer, and then the investors and and the bank. And there's 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 a lot of lot of wisdom to that in in how love trickles down. That brings up the next section, Barry. We ought to get uh, David to comment on. I've really, really enjoyed listening to concept development, menu development, and the process. But I know our listeners uh, would be very interested in hearing your approach to the financial model of your first restaurant. People that are out there that are putting their idea together, their business plan together, are probably wondering, how do you put the pieces together to get financing? Is it banking? Is it all investors, equipment lease? Do the landlords contribute? There's a lot of confusion. Um, and there are still some, I guess, hopefuls that feel like if they have a good relationship with the banker or if they have a good credit, they can just walk in and get a big loan. Um, you being in the business you know, all your life, you know that that's not how it works. So could you kind of give us a little overview of how did it work for you? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of... Uh... There, there's, there's a palette of, of options to choose from. And I think the, the location uh, is, is, the, is the, the driver, first and for, foremost. What, what, is, what is the space that you're talking about? Um, what are the terms of, of the lease and the landlord that you're talking about um, that kind of decide the, the palette of financing options uh, that you draw from? In in our case, um, we were we were really blessed that uh, the landlord was willing to uh, really bet on us with a percentage rent only um, Good. Uh, set up and willing to put in um, about twenty five dollars a square foot okay. um, in 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 TI. So it it really you know they were putting their their, their money where their mouth was and, and their, and their faith and trust in us. So the next step was, okay, how, how do we bring the funding to the table that, 
that we need to match with the landlord and then what is going to be the overall project cost so the, the capital budget was the first step um, and that really has to do with what you can generate from the space uh, because you really want your annual sales to equal the capital budget um, your first year sales to equal the capital budget up front and that that sort of determined what we needed overall and then what we needed to get financed from a bank from investors uh, and what we were personally bringing to the table but that that just happened to be our particular blend and that seems to be the winning lack of a better term combo platter so there's at least four different directions i'm understanding there's landlord contribution uh, but then there's personal equity from owners um, then there's investors uh, and then there's still some lending. Right. And that was, that, that was our, our blend. They, hap they happened to be uh, at almost 30-30 you know, split uh, between, between you know, investors, uh, the, the landlord, uh, and the lender. Obviously, the lender, uh, you, we, we had to take a loan out for the entire capital budget. Um, and then repay the loan with, you know, what the landlord is bringing to the table, what the, and what the investors are bringing to the table. Um, so it, 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 it's a hard nut to swallow because it makes the loan amount large and, um, you know, the, the debt service, uh, monthly is large, but we're paying it off in large amounts as well, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a model that worked for here. Um, obviously, I, I would love for there to be a lower debt service in, in future projects. Um, but I think for, for this one, we, we found the right, the right blend, but it just, it, it makes, you know, it puts the impetus on meeting those, those projected weekly sales, you know, yeah. very, very real, very real. It's not, it's not because of the, the rent that we have to pay. It's, it's because of the debt service. Yeah. Debt financing is, is tough. Um, but, uh, you know, I've got to imagine with your finance background, you had a pretty good handle on projections and, you know, cost of capital and where you need to be and when. Yeah. I mean, the projection, the projections, uh, the, my management background with our family is really what helped because mm -hmm. it, 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 I, I could, I was pretty confident in, what I think we could get with each table turn mm -hmm. with, e with each ticket. Um, Cause we have a long history of knowing how people spend in our restaurants. The, the mix of, of liquor, beer and wine to food might be a little different with this location, but I think we're still going to end up in that 45, $50 per person uh, check average, which, you know, allows people to, to come several times a year, uh, not special occasion, um, not only for birthdays and anniversaries, but, you know, my, my favorite restaurant in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's what we're shooting for. Well, that's good. That's what it sounds like. And then again, where are we on the process there? Uh, are you, have you received your permit or are you about to begin construction or do you know? <laughs> We've passed every part of our building permit uh, except one, which is, which is the health. I don't, I don't know what must have something to do with with plumbing because we're putting an all new plumbing <laughs> into a Sears building 
but once we have that, I'm confident we'll be we'll be breaking ground uh, in December. Uh, so oh, in, in that's the, exciting. Next, in the next coming weeks. Yeah. There has to be something, right, Chris? It, it would be, I've, I've never heard of anybody that just got through the whole inspection process without something. No, no, you're, no, you're right. And I think that that's a key point for the listeners who are getting a really good hands-on feel for, you know, the opening process is that even if you are as knowledgeable and experienced as David is, you've got to have a contingency in the schedule for the curveballs for the permits that take longer, for the plans that have to be reviewed and adjusted. Uh, and again, uh, as, we, as we talked about before, and, and then the cost curve balls, you know, your capital budget grew partly because of the supply issue. And, and I think it was the 30 to 40% increases that you were speaking to earlier of some materials, design and engineering. And so for those of us that are out there what, with plans to open, these are all really good notes to take that, that uh, you've got to be flexible and you've got to be prepared and you've got to be ready for things to take longer than you are expecting and for things to cost more. Um, uh, do I have that right, David? Yeah, absolutely. It's, especially in these times, um, you know, we, we started off with toilet paper, then it was lumber. then it was steel. We don't, we don't know what the next mm-hmm. shortage is going to be. It's been bacon lately unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, but no, I mean, the, the biggest surprise was we're in a historic building um, that we're, you know, it, it was, it was redesigned to with, you know, to hold the most integrity with the initial intent of the building, but we're, we're the first food and beverage operators in it. So there, there was bound to be surprises. Mm-hmm. You know, Barry, see, that's another good point. Too many times we've come across this, haven't we, where somebody says they're going to open up a restaurant and they're so happy because they're moving into an existing space. They're not starting from scratch. And then they learn later that, uh uh-oh, you know, just because the space has been there for a while, it was retail and I've got to, you know, switch out whatever, electrical, bring in more power, more underground so, David, uh, are there other things that you would like to pass on maybe to the people who are listening that are lined up to do their very first one um, that you think they need to make special note of? I think I think it's a great time to be opening restaurants. Um, there are incredible challenges and that we haven't encountered in the industry before, but there's also a huge opportunity to be a pioneer um, especially when it comes to um, the, the the service formula, we the, the industry needs that that shift, and I think is is hungry for it, um, and and customers are 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 ready for it, and I think are are willing to pay for that for that shift um, to be able to dine out because if if anything has shown us at least in the Houston market, people are going to dine out no matter what. No matter what, uh, this is this is our entertainment in the city, uh, and and nothing is going to keep us from dining out and seeing new places. I don't know. I, I think Barry. I think you agree. We're seeing that industry wide, David. It is. It's. It isn't a luxury thing. Dining out is a lifestyle thing, and we're seeing it industry wide, not just in one particular market. There's pent up demand everywhere, and especially with 
given that people have been restricted from traveling and moving about as well as they would like, uh, this gives an opportunity for some adventure. And I think part of that is what I think that's partly driving the interest in international foods, things that are different, things that provide some sense of adventure, because uh, we all enjoy that as part of our life experience. That's a good point. I think people are a little bit more adventurous in their dining these days. And they also uh, want, want uh, experiences that are curated, I think, from what I've found. I've heard from a lot of friends in the industry that people sent back their menus and said, you know what, surprise me, uh, because they've been making too many decisions at home. They want something curated just, just for them. Tasting menus, you know, just, just put on a show. Well, this has been a great education. Um, the power of the menu first to design the, the concept, an adventurous menu, putting your staff uh, at the top of your priorities, taking care of them, um, careful planning with location, um, leaning in to the new normal in terms of takeout and delivery. And, uh, you know, for so many years, you and I, Chris, have been in the business of trying to educate um, operators on the basics of restaurant finance, marketing operations. And then we sit down with David and I feel like I'm the student here and I'm just getting the education. I think so. I tell you what, I think, you know, I think another thing that I got out of this uh, is I think David has underlined how important it is that there is opportunity and for people to realize opening a restaurant is not about being scared. Um, it's all about being prepared uh, because the opportunity out there is worth the hurdles that you're going to be uh, having to cross. So David, we can't thank you enough for the pearls of wisdom that you've shared with us. Thank you for taking a step-by-step through your process. Everybody remember the concept is Limbar. It's Kitchen and Cocktails. It's going to be opening soon in the Midtown area of Houston. And um, David, we wish you and your team the best with it. And your new family as well. Chris, Barry, thank you so much. And on on a personal level, Chris, thank you for all the education that you've given me uh, in in this process as well. Um, you're, You're doing a lot of good for a lot of people. So keep doing what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Have a good one now. And everyone, we look forward to seeing you real, real soon on another episode of The Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.